Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you love. And today we are joined by Brad Barrett of Choose FI. I'm excited to have Brad on because he has a very interesting financial independence story, which is something we'll get into, but he also has a very interesting entrepreneurial journey, which has led him to running the Choose FI podcast, which is an immensely popular podcast in the financial independence space that gets over 1.3 million downloads a month. Brad, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corbin. I'm really excited. Yeah, I've uh, listened to the FI po- the Choose FI podcast a bunch, and uh, you cover bread and butter financial independence topics, which I want to get into today on the show because we haven't really covered that on the Fizzle Show, and I think that's such an important thing for entrepreneurs. But you didn't just pop into running a financial independence podcast. You have an interesting backstory as well. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about choose fi the business that you're running now sure yeah and again thanks for thanks for the nice intro there yeah it's been a it's been a circuitous journey for me and i'm interested to talk about the interplay between that and financial independence and entrepreneurship generally but yeah choose fi i guess we started we started it about three and a half years ago and it's it's interesting because it does actually the the genesis story of it starts with some of my other entrepreneurial journeys and and we will get into that but my co-host jonathan and co-founder he went up hearing me on another podcast talking about travel rewards and he said oh this guy brad is in richmond virginia he's into financial independence and he's into travel rewards i'm all of these things too and he reached out to me just a random guy off the street and said hey let's grab lunch and i don't know what it was but i said yes and we, you know, just became fast friends and he had this idea for this podcast. And, you know, just like any other podcast, we started it to zero listeners, you know, absolutely nothing. And just, January, just three and a half years ago, three and a half years ago. So January yeah. of 2017, we started and yeah, I mean, you know, we essentially had no audience. We had, you know, some people knew me from my website, Travel Miles 101 and Richmond Savers, but, you know, essentially nobody. And, you know, we just grew it through word of mouth, largely. Tom? Jonathan had zero. Jonathan, so Jonathan was a pharmacist when I met him. Wow. He worked at a retail, you know, a major national retail pharmacy. Yep. And yeah, I mean, he had never even started any type of online business, none. And you know, that's kind of one of the cool stories about Choose FI is it's just, it's passion led. It's really like Jonathan has become nearly world-class, I would argue, at a whole host of skills like audio and video editing. You know, I mean, he creates websites now. I mean, this is a guy who, no joke, was an actual pharmacist three and a half years ago. Three and a half years and, ago. Yeah. Yep. And now, I mean, you would never know he wasn't just made to be a, a radio host, essentially. And yeah, I mean, you know, we've had, we've become to a large degree, and, and I don't want to be egotistical here, but to, to a large degree, we've become the center of this worldwide movement towards financial independence. And that's not because of any genius of, of mine or Jonathan's. It's because we realize that community is so important. People are craving community you know, maybe especially in this digital age. And, you know, we have, now we have 300 plus Choose FI local groups in 300 cities across the world. 
So these are people with in real life meetups. We obviously set up a Facebook group for, for each of them, but they get together in real life and support each other on this somewhat unconventional journey to financial independence. So it's, uh, it's amazing to think that, you know, this started from two guys in Richmond VA three and a half years ago. We have, I think, 21 million downloads now, uh, cumulative to date. Again, 300 plus choose if I local groups, almost 70,000 people in a, in a Facebook group. I, I don't normally like spit off these stats, no, but these you know, are... we're on a, a, a podcast, obviously about entrepreneurship. It's uh, it's amazing to see how it's grown. Well, and, and this is something that so many people struggle with. We are big proponents of content marketing. We talk a lot about blogging, podcasting, creating videos, but a lot of people struggle with finding an audience or getting traction for those things that, you know, there, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of attempts at building a popular podcast. And a lot of people just end up with, you know, a few hundred downloads per episode and kind of get stuck at that plateau. And yet you've been able to break through to not just success. I mean, you know, you could be successful with 10 or 20,000 downloads a month, but here you are at 1.3 million, which is one of the biggest podcasts around, especially on this particular topic. So you said that you grew it through word of mouth. Was there anything specific? Do you, were there any like tricks or hacks or anything that like led to like major breakthroughs on the growth of the podcast or was it just kind of steady the whole time? Yeah, it's, you know, we, we do try to do a forensic analysis of this sometimes to, to think back. And we never had that one hockey stick moment. Never. There was never, we got in the New York Times and we got 50,000 listeners and, you know, they never left. It was, it was nothing like that. It really has been steady, like 7 to 10% month over month growth. And I think... I think a lot of that, and, and you know, it's hard. It's easy to look back and say, oh, I think it was because this, right? right. And, and I will never know. But, you know, I think for us, the first 1,000 listeners we got was by being a guest on another popular podcast. Hmm. And okay. I think that made, it was, it was called Radical Personal Finance. And, and that was what got us, went, took us from our moms listening, essentially, to having a small audience. Yeah. And you know, I think from the very beginning, we wanted this to be a community and we didn't want it to be the Brad and Jonathan show. Okay. We didn't want it to be limited by our knowledge, our anecdotes, our expertise, because while we know our stuff, obviously we are not world-class experts at any aspect of finance. You know, I'm a CPA, but you know, there's so much out there and we decided to, to crowdsource this as we call it. And, and I, think, I think that one decision, getting people involved, knowing our audience from the very beginning and making them feel a part of something, I think that that decision was integral to, to the, the success, the ultimate success of this. And I think, you know, just trying to think back, like we looked at, at the medium and tried to try to look at other people out there. I listen to a ton of podcasts and, mm -hmm. and I know kind of anecdotally what I like and what I don't like. And I realized that so many people, like there was a superpower and, and I'd be curious actually to hear your thoughts about this, but there was really a superpower in the sense that a lot of people take perceived limitations 
of a medium and, and just get stuck on that. Like, oh, this is an interview, right? As if it has to be press play, you know, press record, talk for an hour, press stop and upload. Right. And that is just such an absurd limitation for no reason. There's no basis. In fact, when you can make a podcast sound natural, it doesn't have to sound like, like an ultra prog process, you know, NPR, no, no disrespect. I mean, they're wonderful, but like it can still sound natural and you can still edit it. Yeah. And this is something we figured out very early on. And I know it sounds like a little thing, but I would argue that is one of our biggest superpowers is, is just really slowing down. So, you know, for anybody out there listening who has a podcast, like when we have a guest on, we tell them up front, I have this whole spiel that I go through, which is like, you know, this is, you might've been on other podcasts before. This is in theory supposed to lower the stress, but I suspect this is going to be the most stressful part is me explaining to you how we do this. We're going to stop. We're going to hit, we're going to hit pause. We're going to regroup. We're going to say, Hey, you know, I was thinking about asking this question, but I don't want it to end up, you know, crickets on the other end, right? I want, like, we want this to be a collaborative process. And I say almost verbatim, a collaborative process to produce a quality piece of content for the audience that they can take action on almost immediately. That is the guiding light of our recording process. That is the guiding light of everything we do. Produce something quality that is actionable for the audience so they don't feel like they wasted their time. And I say to them, I'm like, look, I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm a CPA who used to do corporate state tax returns. Yeah. You know, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to stumble over my words. You probably are too. We edit this thing. We, nobody's going to look stupid at yeah. the end of this. Like, take your time. Again, this is collaborative. Let's produce something great for our audience. And, and we're all going to be proud of that. So, you know, I know that's a long-winded answer, but that's kind of how we approach this. And it's, it really has worked. Well, and I feel like the the intention is is what matters and not necessarily the approach. I don't want someone to listen to this and say, well, to make a good podcast, I have to stop every five minutes or, or take away some specific approach. It's the intention to produce something in a collaborative way that is going to be quality for people instead of just um, just trying to put out hours of, of content without caring about it. There, there were times throughout the life of The Fizzle Show where we would spend three hours or four hours prepping as a team of co-hosts before we recorded an episode and, you know, had a very specific outline and so on. And, and we've definitely put in time and we've seen that that care leads to the kinds of episodes that you can refer back to later and say, oh man, like if you need to know about such and such, go check out episode number 99 on, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And uh, that feels really good versus just having a trail of, of random conversation. Right. Mediocrity or some such. Exactly. Yeah, you know, you have to respect the time of, of the people who are entrusting you with their most precious resource, their time. Yeah. And realizing that there are a lot of choices out there. I mean, and as a podcast, the reality is it's not as if this is a new medium anymore. Now you are competing with big budget shows produced by professionals. You mentioned NPR, you know, Joe Rogan just got a hundred million dollars to move his podcast over to Spotify. This is a big money professional medium now. And to compete, you have to act like it. The other thing that I, that I really love that you guys do is you 
you don't just speak community like we want to crowdsource this, but you actually get people involved in the podcast. You are a bit more of a traditional radio show in some ways than a podcast and fielding questions from people and talking about specific problems. I, I know that we've uh, been involved a little bit because I have some software that the Choose FI Foundation is using. And Stephen, uh, who's running the foundation, I heard his mom interviewed on your podcast, which was so cool. It's not just community, but it's like it goes into family even, yeah, which yeah. I love, which, which is awesome. So <laughs> we, I want to cover financial independence as a topic because I think that's really important. But before we get into what FI is, let's go back in your journey a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. I would love to know, you said you're a CPA. When did you get the entrepreneurial bug? And, and what did you first start doing? Yeah. So I know specifically when I got it and, and I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be an entrepreneur. That was, that was not in the, the life path at all. And then I read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, like I'm sure so many of, of your listeners have. And, and that was the lightning bolt moment for me. I think I read it shortly after it came out. I don't know, frankly, how, how I came across it at that point, but you know, he was talking about these, these muses, as he termed them, right? And these kind of lifestyle businesses. And I realized at the time, and this was, I mean, this was fairly early days in, in internet world, I suppose, you know, what, probably about 10 years ago, thereabouts. And I realized that a buddy of mine, who I had known for years, had a drop shipping website where he drop, ship, uh, drop shipped ink cartridges for your printer. And I'm reading about something similar of drop shipping in, in the four hour work week. And I had, you know, lots of conversations with, with my friend and convinced him to kind of teach me slash go into business with him. I was uh, somehow convincing of that. And yeah, we it, it really, at that point, it was, it was a learning, learning opportunity. And we wound up finding a website that we bought on, I don't think this this marketplace still exists anymore, but it's called Flippa, F-L-I-P-P-A. A place where people bought and sold websites. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, obviously, uh, other similar sites exist if that doesn't anymore. But yeah, we wound up buying a website called firewood-rack.net. I kid you not. <laughs> firewood-rack.net for $512 on Flippa. And, you know, at that point, we... You know, I wound up doing all all the background, you know, getting the the credit card payment processing and getting the relationships with the manufacturers and such. And I mean, just learning new skills every single day. Though so, uh, we wound up getting pretty high up in the Google rankings, but honestly, and this this kind of typified my first maybe three or four years in in online ventures. That was back in like the kind of battle days of uh, gray hat, let's say SEO. Right. When people were doing things that Google didn't agree with uh, and kind of skirting the rules a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, honestly, it was uh, it's one of those things where, you know, it's it's in your heart of hearts. It was, quote unquote, wrong. Like it, it felt wrong, but everyone around you is doing it. And yeah. this is what some of many of these websites are teaching. And, you know, I, I look back and I think, how could I have been so inauthentic? and knowing doing something that i knew was wrong and doing it anyway right but and and for for people listening and wondering like what wait am i doing that like what what are these things that that do you have an example of a, yeah. a technique that you were doing 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the two that jumped to mind were creating basically junk articles on your website that yep. just had specific keywords in them. Yep. So, I mean, I would literally have people on at that point, it was Odesk. I think it's Upwork now. Hi, hire them to write articles for three to four dollars on something about firewood storage rack or firewood storage rack covers or, you know, yep. and just creating these nonsense articles that existed on our website, which people were coming and spending $300 on a firewood storage rack. But yet we had this garbage article and just to get the keywords. Yep. And also then link building that was not entirely above board, you know, yeah. trying to get links, paying Buying to get links. links. Yeah. yeah. Or and, a lot of times in the day, people would create a network of sites themselves yeah. and then link back to the site that they wanted. And yep. all, all that of, stuff, all of those things, <laughs> all that stuff Google is on the lookout for. Obviously, they're yeah. trying to build as much quality as they can. Exactly. And yeah, you know, to their great credit, the, the Penguin and Panda algorithm updates, you know, years ago decimated those sites and, and rightly so. It decimated tens of thousands of sites. And again, like I said, rightly so. And, and you know, that was kind of a, a reckoning moment for me is, you know, I think of myself as someone who, who does the right thing. And, you know, I clearly went on the other side of that. And I, I just never wanted to be there again. So, you know, I, I picked up a lot of skills, clearly. I certainly didn't make a lot of money, but, but learned, learned the business and, you know, was rightly punished for doing something that, that wasn't exactly right. And, you know, that kind of informed every business that I did there forward. And, uh, you know, if you want me to go into it, I can, I can keep going with the story. Yeah. So you, you learned a painful lesson and, and I've heard of a lot of people that have learned this lesson because, you know, you start building a business, you start getting some search traffic. And then because of some things that you do that you probably knew weren't right in the first place, Google then makes a change and suddenly your traffic dries up overnight. Yeah. And, and that happened to your side as well, you're saying. That is word for word exactly what happened. So so you're left with the ashes of, <laughs> so to speak, of firewood-rack.net. And <laughs> okay, one. okay. I didn't, yeah, jump, yeah. I didn't drop that one in. In, in the good old days. Now, what did you learn about dropshipping as a business? For people who aren't familiar with dropshipping, basically, it's a way to run a physical products business without having inventory, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was and is an extremely elegant business model. I, I mean, if you can make it work, it's, it's marvelous. I mean, for me, I, I can only tell you my exact example, but you know, with this, this firewood rack website, people would come, they would come to our website, they would purchase and they would literally put their credit card information in and we would get, and I would get an email notification of, of the purchase and quite literally Corbett, this was the extent of, of my, my dealings with this. I would forward the email to my contact at the manufacturer and they had our credit card payment on file, obviously. So they took the specs of the product that was purchased and they shipped it out to the person who purchased it and charged me for the amount, the wholesale cost. And we essentially pocketed the difference, which on those particular products were somewhere in the vicinity, you know, it's been a long time. It was somewhere in the vicinity of 20 to 30%. So uh, for at the time, what seemed like forwarding an email, it was 20 to 30% profit margin. And, you know, again, I never, <laughs> I have never seen a firewood storage rack. I've never lit a fire personally in my entire life. Like, you know, it was truly just, just a business. I, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, 
if you build it, they, well, not if you build it, they will come, but it, it was just a, a marketplace for selling these things, you know? So speaking of inauthenticity, and I, and I don't want to push you too hard because <laughs> this is so common for, for people starting out, not realizing that having your heart and soul and, and your, real, your real person behind a business is important. But when we start out, we just think of business as I need to find some buyers and, you know, and sell them a product, regardless of if I know anything about that product. You had never lit a fire. You hadn't even purchased one of these yourself. So you didn't, you were writing articles about these fire racks, but it was just based on the specs, basically. You hadn't actually physically held them. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that's about right. So, okay, you've, you've got these, all these wonderful lessons. You actually built a business. You made some sales, which has to feel good. Um, what was your next move after that? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at that point, it was really a, a soul-searching type moment. You know, I, I had a young family. I had, at that point, one, uh, a daughter who was basically a newborn. And, you know, I'm making a decent salary, certainly, as, as a, a CPA. My wife was a CPA as well. And, and this kind of ties into our financial independence journey, which, you know, we'll talk about later. But, you know, at that point, it's, does this make sense? Does, does all the hours that I've been putting into this, do I want to do this again? Do I want to start something again? And, and I, I really, I thought about that for, for a long time. And I realized that, you know, the, something that I, I, I needed to get behind something that, that was authentic and something I had a passion for. And, you know, I, that's a very loaded term, obviously. And, and, and we, can, we can talk about that. I'd be curious to hear your, your thoughts on, you know, passion projects and the necessity of that. Because frankly, I don't know where I, where I fall down on it. But, but in that case, at that, at that point in my life, that was what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, for me, I always had kind of an unconventional view on personal finance and the importance of saving money to ultimately accrue, accrue power in my life that, you know, gave me autonomy. I think it's what every entrepreneur wants, right? Regardless of at that point, I wasn't an entrepreneur, but, but I think all of your listeners can appreciate that. And, and that truly is the financial independence journey. It's, saving money to get to a point where you have the power over your life. You're not beholden to somebody else. And, and I think it ties so closely with entrepreneurship. So, you know, for me at that point, again, I was on this path to financial independence. Did I want to do this all over again? And, and like I said, I had this great passion and, and kind of unconventional thinking. I'm like, you know what, let's, let's try something. Let's start a blog on personal finance. I remember saying at the time, and I'm not sure how many of your listeners are familiar with, with the financial independence world, but there was a, or there is a website called Mr. Money Mustache. It's the one of, if not certainly in the FI world, it's the largest website and one of the biggest personal finance websites in existence. And I, I said, you know, I'm never going to be Mr. Money Mustache. You know, I'm never going to have millions upon millions of, of page views every year, but you know, maybe I can become something or be known in my local area in, in Richmond, Virginia. So I started the site and it was called richmondsavers.com, okay, where a family of savers, not the greatest name in the world, but, it, but I had this, this kind of concept that theoretically we could be found by local media and press who were looking for, for subject matter experts here locally. Let yeah. me dig in just one second, um, because there's a couple of really important things here. Um, how how long had you been aware of Mr. Money Mustache? How long had that website been around before yeah. you started Richmond Savers? I think it was probably somewhere in the vicinity of a year or two. I, okay. I could get the exact quote, but I think, I, I think that's fair. 
And so Mr. Money Mustache came on the scene and became popular pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and so at this point, you're feeling almost like, well, the opportunity is sort of passed to be that, but maybe there's something I can do that's unique here. And so you decided to jump into writing about personal finance, even though it was already covered elsewhere in a way that you felt you wouldn't be able to replicate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good summation of it. And I, I think, I think what I realized was there are lots of families out there like ours that are in a similar financial background and, and they just, they're unaware that just some simple choices without a lot of deprivation with maybe no deprivation, but just a couple simple choices can put them on such a better trajectory. And I felt like I could speak to families like ours. That was kind of, that was always my guiding light with, with Richmond Savers. It wasn't to, you know, it was never going to be lightning in a bottle like Mr. Money Mustache. It was never going to be enormous, certainly not with the, the website name richmondsavers.com. But, you know, I could speak to similar families like ours. And, and you know, it's funny because my thought process there was wound up coming to fruition in that we got approached by the local NBC affiliate who literally the the uh, money expert Googled saving money, Richmond, Virginia. Oh my and God. we came up in the top three. Wow. How crazy is that, right? That is crazy. <laughs> so it worked. And <laughs> being it worked. the local experts <laughs> actually it panned actually out. worked. Yeah. And yeah, we wound up kind of getting on the map for uh, using travel rewards points, so credit card points mm -hmm. to travel the world for, you know, close to free to save thousands of dollars. And again, it was it was helping families like ours. So we had daughters who wanted to go to Disney World and Disney World is extraordinarily expensive. And I didn't want to spend $5,000, but if I could do it with a plan, if I could be systematic about opening credit cards and getting these massive signup bonuses, I could put together a trip and it wound up happening. It wound up being three generations of our family going. I think the four of us, we only spent $150 and I documented this all and Amazing. yeah, you know, got some local press and then I actually wound up getting featured in, I think it was the most popular article in the New York times in, I, I forget if it was, I think it was January of 2014. It was like their travel tips for 2014. And, you know, this, uh, husband and wife team of CPAs put together this trip to, to Disney world. And, you know, obviously that, that moment was an inflection moment for, for Richmond Savers. And this was um, sort of around the time that travel hacking was becoming a thing that, yeah. that people identified as, okay, that's a, that's a, a genre of content yeah. or of, of something we can try to do. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, again, that it was bridging these gaps, right? It was saying, like, I looked at the world out there, the world of content in the travel hacking world. And I knew that it wasn't necessarily geared towards people like me. It was, at the time, it was geared mostly towards people in their early 20s, looking to kind of jet set around the world in first class. Right. And, you know, again, I knew I spent I mean, I mean, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, like, you know, not the, the most intelligent in the world, but reasonably intelligent. I had to spend dozens upon dozens of hours to realize, to figure out, does this make sense? Is it legit? Is this a scam? You know, all these things. Yeah. And, and I figured it out and we put this plan into place and it worked. And again, I thought 
there are so many other families like ours that could take advantage of this if only they knew, right? So again, it wasn't to set the world on fire. It wasn't to reach every person in America. It was to reach that very specific audience of families like ours who don't really have four or $5,000 to throw around, but maybe if they had 18 months to plan, would love to do this for $150 instead of 4,000 if they only knew how to do it. So you get featured in the New York Times um, and Richmond Savers is now about more than just uh, personal finance. You're, you're getting into travel and, and points and all that kind of stuff. Did that sway your thinking because of the popularity of that article or change what you were planning to do? Yeah, I mean, it definitely changed changed where we took that. So, I mean, I guess just as a kind of a sidebar, I've always looked at personal finance and, and ultimately financial independence, and this this informs Choosefy today. I've looked at it as this kind of life optimization strategy, right? It's like it's not just limited to the nuts and bolts of money. It would get really boring really quickly. You know, if that's all, if how to maximize your 401k. Coming from a CPA, right? <laughs> Know, yep. Knowing just how the minutia can, can feel after a while. Oh, it's horrible, right? But, but if you can paint a picture of this is a path to live a better life, right? If, if the umbrella of living a better life is getting your financial house in order, and then you can focus on the things that light you up in life. Maybe it's travel right? Maybe it's health, maybe it's community or giving back or relationships, your family, all these things, right? Like when you have the time and space to not be stressed about money all the time, you can focus on those things that really matter. And, you know, so while I do agree with, with your thought that, it, that it, was, it was a pivot, like it was always in the back of my mind that, that these are tied, these are tied directly. And, and how, can I, how can I have people see that? But you know, from, from like an actual business perspective on Richmond Savers, I, you know, I realized that clearly there are limitations and, and you have to look at, you have to look at the reality again, like, and, and maybe it's a limiting belief, honestly, Corbett, but, but I didn't ever believe that Richmond Savers was going to get millions of page views a month. But what I did was I looked at the reality of the situation and I looked at my skill set, and I said, okay, the credit card affiliate programs at that time, you know, they pay, they pay a pretty decent amount of money per credit card signup. Up to okay? a couple, couple hundred dollars? Yeah. I mean, that, that was not unreasonable to see at all. And, you know, again, you look at the limitations. So my websites get it. I don't have the exact number, but certainly not many thousands of, of page views. You know, if we got a thousand page views a day, it would be a lot. And I think, frankly, it was dramatically less than that. So this was not a massive website by any means. But what I said was, all right, you know, maybe I can put my CPA's hat on and say, how do I look at this problem a little bit differently? How can I, how can I take the limitations of it being a small traffic, but looking at how much I can make and, and saying, all right, how do I turn this into a business? So what I did was I actually offered, I called it free travel rewards coaching. Okay. So literally someone would put their, their name and, you know, some other just background information into a form on my site. And I would schedule a free 30 minute call with them. All right. So no joke when at my CPA's job, I'm a corporate tax manager at noon and 1230 during my lunch hour, I had two 30 minute calls most days of the week. 
completely free. I would jump on the phone with strangers, talk through their questions because like you said, or, you know, you obviously have a background with travel hacking. I mean, this is, it's complicated and people are nervous and they want to see that. And, and this is a theme you've, you've heard over the last half hour is people want to see that this is real. They want to relate to people, you know, they want to and, talk to a real person and, and hear you say, yes, what I wrote and what you read is real. We really yes. went to Disneyland and it's not that difficult. And here are the gotchas, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I'd answer all their questions and, you know, it didn't just have to be Disney, but you know, I, I would put together a plan for them on where, where they intended to travel. And, you know, naturally I would send them an email follow-up. I would give them a detailed plan and give them, you know, where to sign up for credit cards using, using our links. Or if we didn't have one, certainly the publicly available offer, you know, it's, you always have to give, 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 it has to be value. People yep. can tell when you're spammy, when you're self-serving, it was never that. And I, I went out of my way to always give people the best offer. But knowing that, okay, lifetime value of customer here, if people sign up for a couple credit cards or come back to me or, you know, a couple of years later for another plan or tell their family and friends, all right, you know, that 30 minutes I spent on the phone with them plus another 20 or whatever, 20 or 30 writing that email, there's some value here. And you know, so that was, it was a weird kind of real world online hybrid. And, 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 and in those, so in that hour that you're spending during your lunchtime, if all goes well, and both of your calls result in someone signing up for one or two credit cards, you might've pocketed ultimately $500 for that hour of your time. Yep. Yep. Not inconceivable at all. So yeah. And who knows, you know, if they're followed that plan, maybe they'll use that email three months down the road when they're going to open up another card. Right. So it, so this sounds like a great business. Was this, was this going well? And, and was this, when did you end up, are you still working in this um, role as a corporate tax manager or, yeah. or when did that change? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and this all does tie, like this is, this is the inflection point in my life. And, and it's, it's the kind of combination of that financial independence journey with having this somewhat successful Richmond Savers site around, it was the January of 2015. So it's about five and a half years ago. I had reached a point where we weren't at financial independence and, and we'll get into that later, certainly what, what, what that means by definition, but, but we were well along the path, well, well, well along the path. And I realized that I had this business that was, that was growing and was doing well. I mean, it wasn't setting the world on fire, but it was making a, certainly a couple thousand dollars a month at that point. And I, it was proof of concept for me. It was proof of concept that this could work. And if I had more hours, if I wanted to be as you know, labor intensive as this, that, that I could make this something really big. But again, that would always be limited by my time. So I was trying to think, how can I scale this? What can I do to make this happen? And you know, at that time, so yeah, this was January of 2015. And I wound up partnering with a friend of mine uh, who I met online. I've never, never met in person at that point. We met through his personal finance website and mine. He's a cardiologist in Portland, Oregon. I'm a CPA in Richmond, Virginia. And we started a website called travelmiles101.com, where basically it was, it was a, a course. You know, to, to you and all your listeners, this is, this is obvious stuff, right? This is just an email autoresponder. It's nothing that special in the cosmic scheme of things. But, but at that time, five and a half years ago, this was something a little bit different. We created a Facebook group for just uh, that cohort of people who were going through it the first month. And 
you know, we put some artificial scarcity on it. You know, we limited it. I mean, frankly, it wasn't artificial. It was just, let's, we don't know how many people we can handle this first month. So let's limit it. And, you know, we created this course in real time. So, I mean, I, we came up with the idea in January, we marketed it. Interestingly enough on the Mr. Money Mustache forum, we called it, uh, so it was travelmiles101.com, but we called it Miles for Mustachians. And, you know, it was, it was finding our community. It was our audience. And tapping into an existing audience, which is something that a lot of times you have to do to find enough buyers, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, this was, it was, again, it was a value add, you know, obviously no question about it. We could earn money on this and we, and we did, but it was, all right, there are plenty of people in the financial independence community who want to learn about this, but they don't have a way. Mm. And how can we produce something for our community? So, you know, I was no joke still, cause this came out daily. So I was, I was creating sometimes on like February 13th, the email that was going to go out the morning of February 14th. And, you know, and it was in very much in real time. And that said, that course still exists to a very similar degree today. And yeah, I think we put some, somewhere over 50,000 people through it in the intervening years. So it was cool. And well, then there's a couple of things that I love about this. Um, The first is that you effectively pre-sold the course before it existed. And the reason I love that is because it's so easy to get lost in the weeds creating a course before you sell it. And I've seen so many people struggle with it to the degree that they never finish. And here you are with a bunch of customers expecting you to have this course ready for them. So you have no choice but to create it. So it's yeah. sort of a, a forced deadline on yourself, which is amazing. Yeah. And then the second thing is, you know, a lot of times you can look at working on something by, you can measure it by the results that you immediately get after launching. So here you spend, you know, tens or hundreds of hours working on this course. And within the first, you know, three months or whatever, maybe you didn't make enough to really justify all that time. But if you fast forward five years later and then you look at, okay, well now in the, in the context of these five years and how many people have gone through it and the revenue that we've made and so on, then the hourly rate that you earned for that time is so much better. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly astronomical as in, in comparison. And, and yeah, I totally agreed, wholeheartedly agreed. And just to, to put like a, a tiny additional point in here is this again was kind of bridging from business to business, right? So I had that sense that, that this free model worked, that especially people in the financial independence community, these are you know, potentially frugal people who aren't looking to lay out $197 for a course or whatever you know, people, people charge. So we actually offered this course for free. So again, it was entirely for free, which you know, there are pluses and minuses to that, obviously. Uh, but, but we had an audience that was craving this. And we didn't want to limit it by that. And again, knowing that you can make a significant amount of money for these signups, potentially, we, we thought there was enough potential upside that we, you know, the, the obvious foregone revenue was, was still worth it. And, and we still hold to that, that model today. So you can sign up for that course right now for free if you're interested. And is that a model that you carried forward into uh, your current business? Yeah. So Chooseify, yeah, we currently, to, I was going to say to my knowledge, but no, currently we do not have any paid courses. We, and this is actually where we've uh, worked with you and your company. We, 
our, we did start a charitable foundation. So we have a course, again, this is a free course called FI 101, and it's at our foundation, choosefifoundation.org. And yeah, we, we, I've always had the sense, and and I know the art, the counter argument, which is people don't necessarily value free, right? And, and maybe it reduces the percentage of completions, but, but we've always had the sense that, you know, we want to get this information out as far and as wide as we can. And until I'm proven otherwise by the data, I think, I think we would ideally like to keep, keep these free. Yeah. And I think there is evidence that we all interact with every day on our phones where we're using free apps that obviously cost millions of dollars to develop, but those companies have bet that by going wide, they're able to, you know, cast a really big net and uh, serve a lot of people at a lower cost or free to those people and find revenue opportunities elsewhere. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So uh, you have Travel Miles 101. It's doing fairly well, it sounds like. You have Richmond Savers as well. And you mentioned earlier that your current co-host of Choose FI found you one day because he heard you on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that was the moment. So yeah, I was I was actually on the Mad Fientist. So that's FI, mm. you know, Financial Independence, Mad Fientist podcast, which is a huge podcast. And I was on with my uh, co-founder of Travel Miles. And again, Jonathan heard me and just kind of reached out. And and it was interesting because we, and, and I know you've listened to some of our episodes, so you know how excitable Jonathan is. And he talked a mile a minute that that first meeting. And, you know, he had this idea. He had this idea to start a website. This had nothing to do with me. It was just, hey, I'm going to start this website. You know, X, Y, and Z, I have all these plans. And, and, and this is over lunch. This is over lunch. Yeah. The first time we met. And, yeah. you know, I, it was interesting because so many people have, have ideas, right? They have intentions, but they don't take action. And, and I was curious. I, I, he kind of came through my mind a couple months later, and I just jotted him off like a quick text message and just said, hey, man, was curious if you ever, if you ever got started with that site. And he said that one moment was the lightning bolt that changed like everything in his life, that just that little bit of follow-up made, made a difference and compelled him to take action. Because frankly, he had done nothing. He had done absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, like, like most people, you know, it, it's easy to get excited. It's hard to take action sometimes. And he wound up researching the name of a website. He uh, bought the domain name, Choosefi. And he actually, I think he furiously wrote a couple articles just to kind of prove to me that he had done something. and. He followed up and was like, and basically said to me, Hey, I've got this idea. I want to pitch you on something. And we met at Starbucks and, and had a coffee. And he talked to me about an idea to do a podcast. And, you know, he hit all the right notes for me at that point, which was, you know, I, I obviously had a passion for helping people with, with travel rewards. And it was great, you know, to get these emails. Oh, you saved me $5,000 on a, honeymoon to Paris or Tahiti or something. And that felt great. But my real passion was always financial independence. And, you know, we saw a potential opportunity that this is a community that is growing dramatically. And at that point, there really weren't any other five podcasts other than the aforementioned Mad Fientist. But, and, and, and he, his name is Brandon. He's a good buddy of mine. So this was never a competition with him, but it was, you know, he put out a podcast every month or every six weeks and it wasn't, it wasn't 
that ever present that we thought could be valuable in people's lives. Because, you know, again, people, especially when you're on a somewhat unconventional path, which is what the path to FI is, it's, it's a little kind of countercultural, even though, you know, frankly, I don't think it should be, but, but it is nonetheless. It's just having that feeling that other people out there are doing this too, that maybe you're not alone. You might be an island unto yourself and your friend group or your family, but there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people doing this. We thought that that, that ever-present value could, could really help people. And, and it's not unlike entrepreneurship where, like you said, so many people have intention and so few take action, but even those who do take action often lose their way. And if they have community, if they're connected with other people and it becomes part of their social norm, to be pursuing this as a goal, it's so much more likely that they're going to follow through and find success. Yeah, agreed. So this, this I think, would be a, a great point to um, introduce for people who aren't familiar just what is financial independence in its most simple form. Yeah. Yeah, so so financial independence, and and just one last note about about that is, you know, I think people relate to stories, and and I think for entrepreneurs out there, like, this is such a critical point is that Jonathan and I could not be more different in our lives. Like we are just completely different people in every, every possible way, basically. But we get along so well because we have this, this tie that binds, this path to a better life. And I think that's how we've always looked at it. But also, again, people relate to stories. So some people consider themselves Jonathan people. Some are, oh, I relate to Brad and his story. And you know the guests that we have on, you know, we, we try, you're never going to hit your entire audience with that perfectly relatable story with every guest. It's just not possible. You shouldn't even try, but we'll get emails on episodes that we think like they didn't, they didn't relate to us, but somebody heard their story and it just connected with them. And they said, man, if that person could do it, I can too. And that is so powerful. So, so powerful. So powerful. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I, I wanted to get that little sidebar in. So thanks for no, bearing with me. But so, yeah, so go ahead. Go. No, please, please. No, so um, so explain for us uh, financial independence, and and this is something that, um, if you if you hear it for the first time in your thirties or forties or fifties, you just kick yourself, <laughs> and wish that you had known this when you were much younger. So maybe you can address it as a general topic and then explain how it relates to people at different ages. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, you know, financial independence is ultimately getting to the point where work is optional. Okay. Paid work in a traditional sense is optional. Now the, the, the normal acronym you hear is FIRE, which is financial independence, retire early. But we, we don't really take a lot of, I, I don't know, we don't spend any time on the retire early because honestly, people have passions, people have entrepreneurship, you know, people have businesses, people have things that they've always wanted to do that, that might earn them money, which is great. There's no doctrine when it comes to uh, reaching this financial independence point and you have to close up shop, go sit on a beach and sip umbrella drinks, right? Like that's not what life is about. To me, Life is about spending your time as you see fit. And that is in such short supply when it comes to, you know, obviously I'm in America and, you know, I'm sure we have an international audience, but this relates to everybody. But, you know, here in America, like 
the American dream is something that I, I don't subscribe to. It's generally buy the biggest house you can, get these fancy cars and impress your friends, right? And I, I guess my answer is to what end, right? To, to afford those things, you have to work ever increasingly more hours or, you know, more stress, all this stuff. And I mean, we, if we're fortunate, get maybe nine decades on this planet and to spend it in a job that doesn't light you up every single day just seems to me to be the ultimate of folly. And, you know, I guess, you know, you, you take a step back and you say, all right, look at your financial position today. Clearly it's, you need to create some space. So many people are living paycheck to paycheck. And again, they, they might have all the trappings of wealth. But at the heart of it, if you don't have any money in the bank, if you don't have any assets, you're not wealthy at all, right? So for me, it's about, it's about refocusing life on what's important to you. And again, there's no doctrine when it comes to FI. Something that's important to you might be a fancy car. It's not for me. I drive a 2003 Honda Civic that is, has the paint falling off. Like it's, it's, it's <laughs> a nightmare, <laughs> but it, it gets me where I need to go. And, you know, for me, what I wanted out of life was spending time with my kids and my wife and the people that I love and doing things that light me up. And, you know, what we said was, all right, we're not going to buy the most expensive house we can find. We're going to drive old cars. We're going to eat in at our house most of the time, you know, not as deprivation and certainly not as, oh, we could never eat out or any of that stuff. Anytime you get into deprivation, it turns into a diet like thing. That's, that's short term. It's not right? sustainable. Like, it's not sustainable at all. It's, you know, financial independence is about it's long-term thinking. It's how do I create a framework of a life that I'm excited about? every single day. And, you know, it's not, there's no get rich quick in this. It's how do I, again, how do I create that space in my finances? You know, obviously you have income, you have expenses and you have then the difference, right? And, and you obviously hope it's positive. And, you know, the more money that you can save every month, and again, not for deprivation sake, not so, you know, your friends can call you cheap or a miser, but to save that money to get to a point where, Working is working for job for pay is potentially optional. That is a life's goal, and you know, and and I'll stop there, Corbett, because I, I'm sure and, you have questions. And well, and, and just to to clarify, the result of all that savings is owning enough assets, whether that be cash or uh, stocks or real estate, so that they generate cash flow every month that covers your expenses if you want them to. But for some people, they continue to work or they own a business or whatever. But that way, if all of your traditional sources of, it, of income, whether that be your business or your employment went away, you would still be able to continue your life indefinitely as it is. Yep, that is exactly it. And for most people that ends up, it, it's dependent on how much you spend every month. But for most people that ends up being somewhere between a million, two million, three million dollars, something like that. In yeah, that's... Yeah, that sounds about right. And, and I think this is interesting, right? Because again, it's, it's putting things on paper. And, and I think that's the first step on the path to FI is so many of us are afraid to look at our financial situation because we know it's not good. But taking action 
is the bedrock of everything. It's, it's what we've talked about this whole hour, right? It's you have to get up off the couch and take action. They can be small, but you have to start today to make your life better. You know, it's the, the aggregation of marginal gains. It's that 1% better, but it starts with action. And for me, it's putting it on paper and, you know, what are my, what's my income? What are my expenses? What do I owe? What are my liabilities? And what do I own? What are my assets, right? And when you get that picture for maybe the first time in your adult life, you're faced with some realities, right? Of what, what do I have to do to make this better? But to your point, the expenses are what drive that financial independence number. And this is such a rethink for anybody who's ever looked at a retirement calculator or seen, listened to someone like Susie Orman who says, oh, you need 10 or $15 million to retire, right? I don't know about you, but my brain shuts down when I hear that because that is not practical. That's not practical for 99.999% of people. I don't care your income. It's just not practical. So what do people do? They throw up their hands and they say, this is impossible. I'm going to move on. I'm just going to live my life kind of happily with blinders on and, and you know, hope it all works out. Hope isn't really the greatest strategy, right? So, you know, you look at what, what are my expenses? And this, again, is what drives the financial independence calculation as opposed to these normal calculators. They start with your income. Now, I think that's fundamentally flawed because your income, in order to ever get to a point where you can retire, there has to be savings in there, right? <laughs> right, right. So it's, it's almost irrelevant what your income is. Yeah. It's a, it, what's relevant is what do I have to cover every month, whether it's passive income or regular income from a business or some type of job or from my investments, potentially either you know, dividends or selling some investments, which you know, is, is not exactly what most people think. But, but again, when you go through, and this is outside the scope of, of this conversation, but when you go through the calculation, that's all part and parcel of a financial independence number. And you know, having that power, because again, it comes back to that, right? Having the control over what are those monthly expenses? And for every $100, when you do the calculation, for every $100 you take out of your monthly budget, that's $30,000 less you need in your net worth when you reach financial independence. So little choices, the little choice between getting that cell phone that costs 120 bucks a month and has unlimited data and 5G and all this other stuff. And you know the choice that I made, which is Republic Wireless. And I know this is an anecdote, but bear with me here. Republic Wireless, it cost me 20 bucks a month, okay? And again, I'm not depriving myself, but I made a very intentional choice. So I have one gigabyte of data. So what that means is I don't stream Netflix and I don't download podcasts when I'm off Wi-Fi everything else, I have the exact same thing. And that's $100 per month. That's $30,000 less I need to reach financial independence for one decision. Multiply that by my wife. Now it's 60,000 we need less. You know, it's every decision. So it's, it's such a cool rethink on having power and autonomy in your life of, I can control this. I mean, it's, it's, it, it it's changes everything. It's the ultimate life hack because now you have it, you have, it's not the meaning of life, but you have a goal for your working life, at least for all of the income and expenses that you have, you now have a framework and a goal that you're working towards. And most people don't. And, and, and so they end up floundering. And, and I want to encourage people, you know, listening to this, you can, 
you can hear the enthusiasm coming from Brad. And I have to say, Jonathan is at least as enthusiastic <laughs> about this topic. And so the podcast Choose FI is a must listen to, especially if you're just kind of hearing these things for the first time. Check out the Choose FI podcast. Uh, you can also head to the Choose FI website. But if you go to choosefifoundation.org, as Brad mentioned, there is a free course called FI 101 that you can take that will guide you through a lot of this stuff that you need to understand just to get a lay of the land. And then you can decide how it applies to you. But it's very hard to hear what this is all about and not have it impact your life in some way, I'd say. Yeah, that, that means a lot, Corbett. Thank you. Brad, if you were listening to this, say it was Brad six or eight or 10 years ago, and you, and you just heard your story and you just heard about FI, what would you be taking away from this? Yeah, that is a brilliant question. I, I would be taking away that, that little actions matter and that you can control where you end up in life by making by taking action and following this path. And so many people get caught up in that elusive they, right? Those forces are acting upon me. There's some they out there. And when you change it around and you, and you have an internal locus of control of, I can exert influence on my world around me and the trajectory of my life. It just gives you a mindset that enables you to thrive. And it enables you to look at life. Like my wife and I, we look at life as this, this game that we can kind of win and win together. And that's the coolest part about this. It's, it is, it's fun. It's fun to say, all right, we are going down, again, this slightly unconventional path, but we live in an upper middle-class neighborhood. We, to all outward appearances, are living a regular life, just like keeping up with the Joneses like everybody else. But yet in our working careers, we saved 50 to 70% of our income by just making little decisions. It can be done. That's what I would tell that, that person out there. And, and that, again, that goes back to my whole story, which is when you see someone doing it and you hear them and you know that it's real, not just some scam, right? So many people get caught up in, oh, that can't be real. That can't be for me. It's got to be a scam. It can't be that easy. I'm here to tell you, again, this is not get rich quick. It's just not. But over a 10 to 20 year period, almost anybody, almost anybody can reach a point of financial independence and certainly a point of financial strength. But you have to get up off the couch and take action starting today. Brad, thank you so much. This is uh, such a powerful story. And I love how FI compliments entrepreneurship so well and vice versa. And your story perfectly embodies that. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And everybody, as I mentioned, you can find more of Brad and Jonathan on the Choose FI podcast, which you can find in any podcast player. And as always, I'm Corbett Barr. You can find the show notes to this over at fizzleshow.co. This was episode number 373. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show.